February 10th. It's 2016. Our message this evening is called On Your Mark. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time with telling you how I came up with that. Uh, while you're turning to 2 Timothy, the third chapter, uh, I will tell you that there was a time in my life when uh, track was a regular sport for me. I know that's hard to tell now. You know, I'm one of the few people that both played on the offensive line, ran the 100 meters, and threw a shot put. So that is a, an awkward combination, I know. But can I tell you when they said, get on your mark, it meant a gun was about to fire. It meant that whatever you had stored up was about to be revealed, or the lack thereof. Our motto in those days is, who has the will to prepare? Uh, I can only tell you that I'm not ashamed to borrow a, a track and field expression for a sermon because Paul told the Galatian church, who cut in on you? You were running a good race. I know one thing, though. One of the problems that plagues people in track and field is once you have one false start, it happens over and over and over. It's an interesting thing. It's contagious. It's like a fumble in a football game. Tonight, I want to get us into a frame of mind where you are in place to run your race, where you have a plan before you're in a compromised situation, where you have already made up your mind what the answer is even before the Lord has asked you the question. In the famous words of a particular boxer, Everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. Christianity is an absolutely full contact event. We are in contact with spiritual powers. We are in contact with their puppets. Sometimes we even get into hand-to-hand combat, sparring sessions with other Christians. If you do not know who you are in Christ, do not know who the living one is to you, you are almost certainly going to end up injured and on the wayside. Listen to the way that Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, starting in the first verse. But mark this. Can we say that if he said mark this, he meant mark this? I was thinking of another time he said mark this. He told the Galatian church, mark my words. If you allow yourself to be circumcised, Christ is of no value to you. He wrote that to believers, by the way. That if they took that step in that church at that time, that they would be cutting themselves off. So if Paul says, but mark this, he's talking about a serious subject. Can you say amen to that? But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. How many of you believe we're in the last days? So what should you expect? You should expect to be a bright shining star in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances. When I say the most difficult of circumstances, this is because Matthew 24 tells us very clearly, there will be a time of trouble, unequaled from the beginning of the world until then and never to be equaled again. Well, guys, it's gotten pretty rough on this ball of dirt through the centuries. So if we're headed to the last days, if we're headed towards the most terrible of times, 
You better set your heart and mind on the things above. This is not the time to be flirting with the world. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. I'm just going to tell you, I do missions all over the world. Most of you know that. This is by far the most ungrateful country I've ever seen. If we spill flour, when we're pouring flour out of 50 kilogram bags into small baggies in the garbage dump in Mexico, the kids scrape up the flour because it's precious to them. And here, you can go to public housing projects and hand out an iPod that is five years old and they throw it in the trash because it's not the newest model. We are an ungrateful society. We look at the blessings that God has given us as entitlements, that he owes it to us, and we have raised up for ourselves teachers that will tell us we are champions even if we live like devils. And as long as there are enough devils in the audience, then they put up with the devil behind the pulpit. But the word of God is a serious matter. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited. You have to be an apostle to get on a roll like this. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Aren't you glad that this has nothing to do with our society? Lovers of pleasure rather than of God? Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with them. Can you all say that with me? Have nothing to do with them. How many of you have a litmus test for your fellowship with other believers? Will you eat with someone that is sexually immoral even though the Bible says that you shouldn't? Will you have something to do with believers that only have a form of godliness but there is no power over sin in their life? Have you elevated your opinions above the scripture? Because what happens when it gets even worse and your judgment is suspect? Can I tell you that we serve a God who plans centuries in advance. He tells Abram that he's going to have his descendants enslaved and mistreated in a, in a foreign land hundreds of years before the event. He titles the book of Exodus in Hebrew, Shemot, I know your names. Even when they're going into slavery so that they will remember, he foretold the difficult time ahead. And the God who knew their name would bring them out by name. I tell our Bible study on Monday nights very often. The question is not, does God know your name? It's, will you remember his during difficult times? It takes the power of the gospel. It takes the spirit of Christ to deliver you from temptation. This is why Jesus taught us to pray. Father, deliver us from evil. We need divine help to walk in a new way. It's not a simple thing. And yet, most of the time, most of the church thinks that we can hang out with whom we want to hang out. We can do whatever we want to do. 
And it will all be fine because, after all, we prayed a prayer and made a commitment at some place in our life. But what if you were a liar then, like you have been a liar so many other times in your life? So, no, pastor, I'm not. I'm not. That's right. That's why we have a better than 50% divorce rate. Because nobody lies to anybody anymore, right? No, people are willing to stand up, make vows before God that they will not keep. I'm not here to beat on you tonight. I'm here to tell you that I love this congregation. And it's important to me that as things get more and more difficult, more and more confusing, that we cling to the word of God and the power that comes from it because we live in a society that there is a flood of decadence just pushing everyone off of the standard all of the time. And it is so prevalent That what the writers of the New Testament said, people think it is strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. It is so normal to treat the scripture lightly that people actually think they're doing fine when in fact they're living powerless lives. I want to show you a picture of a city. This is Ephesus today. (coughs) The area that is was biblical Ephesus, I should say. And at the turn of the first century, this city had about a half a million people in it. Say half a million. million. Now, half a million is not a big city by our standards. But when you don't have indoor plumbing, half a million people is a bunch to have in one place. When uh, you don't have electricity, half a million is a bunch of people to have in one place. That's an awful lot of things that you have to keep separate, like fires and septic systems and all of those kind of things. In fact, this is the virtual New York of the first century, if you will. It's the Los Angeles of the first century. It's the Paris of the first century. 500,000 people gathered into one place in this kind of situation is an awful lot. I want to read you some things the Bible says to the Ephesian church, okay? This is, uh, we're, we're just going to flip through the book of Ephesians together. Go to Ephesians, the first chapter. DJ, you can stay on this picture for a minute. This is Ephesians 1.3. Tell me if you're in Ephesians 1.3. Say, hey, I'm there. Okay, we're just going to pick three or four scriptures as we go from left to right through Ephesians. Ephesians 1.3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, say blessed us, us. in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What did the Ephesians lack? They had every spiritual blessing. Can we say that's a full gospel? (laughs) Whatever you think that they may have needed, Whatever spiritual blessing is available in Christ, the Bible says they had. Look at Ephesians 1 in verse 18. Paul praying for the Ephesians. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms. 
power that raised Christ from the dead is available to the Ephesian church? Every spiritual blessing available to the Ephesian church? Look at the second chapter in the sixth verse. And God raised us up with Christ. Say raised us up. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. How special would you feel if you lived in Ephesus? Let's, let's take it a step further. Look at the third chapter in the tenth verse. His intent, speaking of God, His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Do you mean to tell me that the Ephesian church was told that they had every blessing? That they had the kind of power that Christ uh, was exerted in Christ when He was raised from the dead? That they are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm? That they are teaching heavenly powers a many-sided or manifold message of God's wisdom. Look at the 6th chapter and 12th verse. This ought to be familiar to you. It's in Ephesus that he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let me ask you, how lightly would you take these kind of statements? We apply them to us, but who were they originally written to? The Ephesian church. When you're thinking of the Ephesian church and getting on your mark, when you're thinking of every spiritual blessing, when you're thinking of seated with Christ, teaching the powers in the heavenlies a lesson, and constantly being reminded that you're struggling against spiritual powers. Let's consider Acts 19. Go to Acts 19. I want you to hear some things that happened in Ephesus. DJ, go to the next slide. In Acts 19, we're going to pick up with each other in verse... Eleven. While you're finding verse 11, Ephesus in the ancient world is the center of travel and commerce. It's situated on the Aegean Sea at the mouth of the Castor River. The city was one of the greatest seaports of the ancient world. It was famous all over the world because of this. The three major roads that go from the seaport go through Babylon via Laodicea, they go through Smyrna, they go through the Meander Valley, all over the Roman and Greek world. Ephesus is an important place. In Acts 19, beginning in verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, And their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, 
a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, before I move on, let me just make something very clear. I am not rooting for the demon. We all chuckle. But why did he leave them naked and bleeding? Because they knew the name of Jesus. They knew Paul had power. They were loosely associated with the message of Jesus because they're preaching it. But they themselves had no power over sin. And the proof of that is they left naked and bleeding. Oh my goodness. If you had eyes to see in the spirit in here tonight, how many of you are naked and bleeding? Because your every encounter with a spiritual power leaves you as the one dominated rather than the one that is stepping on the devil's head. Do you know that the Bible says have nothing to do with a form of godliness that denies its power? Saints, we are called to have every blessing from the heavenly realm spiritually in us. We are called to exert the same kind of power that was exerted in Christ when He was raised from the dead. We are to live as if we were seated in the heavens now. And we are ever mindful that our lives are about teaching heavenly powers a message about our God. We are ever mindful that our struggle is not about the man or woman in front of us. It really is about spiritual powers struggling. Now, how many of you would like to live in Ephesus when you hear about extraordinary miracles? Look at verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. When's the last time you heard that happening? Oh, it's a private matter. You sin publicly, but you confess privately? How does that work? You know, a fifth of the world's population on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, three days it'll change your life in New Orleans by sending you to the very pit of hell. (laughs) A fifth of the world's population just celebrated Mardi Gras and is now practicing Ash Wednesday because on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, you can live like hell as long as you make some kind of commitment on Wednesday. This doesn't cause the name of Jesus to be held in high honor. It causes it to be mocked around the world. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Look, I, I don't, we're, we are a diverse church. I, I imagine that Pastor Wade, Matthew, and Eric are among the poorest in here, and yet we don't feel poor. What's a day's wages? Somebody spit out a number. I didn't hear it, but it came from a housewife. you got to love that. Come on, what is it? Give me a day's wages. 150. We're going to live at Spencer's house this week. We're going to eat well. $150, 50,000 drachmas, a drachma was one day's wages in Ephesus in the first century. 
They burned books that were worth 50,000 days wages. Put that in perspective. Now I want you to think about something else. How invested were they in things that were wrong? Things that would never heal them, never help them. You know, as Americans, we spend more money on dog food every year than we do on missions. Don't get me started on cosmetics. How invested are you in things that will never help you? Because when you have a radical collision with Jesus Christ, the first thing that you want to do is tell the whole world that everything about you, not some small part, not you just tried to do better, everything about you has to change. And you want to do it in the most open, public, possible way. And let me tell you why. Because you're going to need that public testimony to help hold you to your word for the rest of your life. The world loves people who are wicked. The world can even tolerate a man who is righteous as long as it's from a distance. But nobody has any tolerance for a hypocrite. The reason that people like to repent privately is because they don't want to be held accountable to the promise they're making to God in that moment. How many of you in this room are married? Lift up your hand, your left hand if you're married. If, ladies, you can put your hands down. If your man said, girl, I love you like no other. You know what I'm saying. I want to propose to you. But don't tell anybody. Don't show anybody. In our ceremony, it'll be held away from everybody. No witness. Don't bring a camera. Don't bring a video recorder. Are you starting to get a little nervous yet? He says, because you, you, baby, you, you're everything to me. Why do we do weddings in front of the whole world? Why do we do it with uh, symbols, certificates, uh, entourages? Because you're making a public commitment before the whole planet that this will be your spouse until the day that you die. Don't tell me religion's a private matter. Revelation 19 is about the the marriage of the lamb and his bride. If you will not embrace him publicly, then when you see him publicly in a heavenly sense, in the new kingdom sense, he will disown you publicly. Oh, church, that we could learn to repent and it didn't take ten prophecies in a service to get us to repent. What I know about Ephesus is they were blessed in every way. And how serious did they take the gospel? The whole city has been turned upside down. This says, uh, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Grew in power beyond seeing people healed by handkerchiefs? Grew in power beyond not... Listen, can you imagine when we're not talking about miracles anymore, just run-of-the-day ordinary miracles... We have to use a word like extraordinary miracles. Extraordinary. Beyond an ordinary miracle is what was happening with Paul. That is spiritual Ephesus. How blessed. How many of you want to move your revival to Ephesus? 
I want to show you a theater in Ephesus. This theater is, this is the remains of it today. And uh, we're about to read about this theater. I just want you to get a, a picture of it in your mind. Does this look like a private place? This is the uh, stadium that would hold the Super Bowl in the first century. Uh, it holds about 25,000 people, this stadium. It, uh, it's one of those things that is designed, they say, for theatrical performances. But the truth is there's an awful lot of evidence that there were gladiatorial performances in it. So if you live in this area and you want to honor your rich culture, you say it was for theatrical purposes. But if you're an archaeologist and you dig and you find knives that are not stage props and bones that are not stage props, they go, okay, so maybe there was a little gladiatorial stuff here. This is an arena where Christians are later fed to lions. Turn with me to Acts 19, verse 23. That was easy. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know we receive a good... What's that word? We receive a good income from this business. Why was in the idolatry business? That's eh, a good income. I've been to places and watched idol makers. I mean, literal carving it out of stone idol makers. I even had a fortune teller follow behind us and say, these people are servants of the Most High God in a language that we couldn't understand, but our interpreter could. What must your life be like if you're making objects of idolatry for money? Who chose your profession, saints? Did the king of kings choose your profession or did you choose it? You know, I don't work for money. I work at the pleasure of the king. I happen to be paid by whomever he chooses. Can you imagine that your job is to get people entangled in idols? You know when that first dawned on me? When I was a young man working in the car business. Guy next to me has two Christians. This actually happened more than once. He's got two Christians in his office. They're young. They're looking at what was a conversion minivan at the time. They say, you know, we, we feel like we ought to pray about this. Now, I know that the man is an absolute hellion who's working with them. He grabs their hands. He says, great, let's pray. He's not used to Christians with power. He figures that they'll pray. They pray. The couple looks at him and says, we don't think the Lord wants us to, uh, to have the van. While he's still holding their hands, he closes his eyes and goes, Lord, please show him that it is a conversion minivan with leather seats and a TV set. And he just waits. <laughs> you know, I stuck my head in next door and I said, you are going to bust hell open seven ways from Sunday. Let these decent people go. And he did. <laughs> okay. We live in a time where if the money is right, it justifies almost anything. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is examine the average church bookstore. This man is selling idols and he is not concerned with what is right 
or what is wrong. He is concerned with his, his business. He called them together along with workmen in the related trades and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. If you're Paul right now, you got to love this testimony, right? It's like when four young men in this church were being dismissed for proselytizing. It's like, hey, yeah, thank you. Somebody noticed. You're trying to persecute me and what you're doing is actually affirming my God calling. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. I would like you to just summarize in your mind for a second because this is going to be one of those messages where point A has to go with point B, has to go with point C, and you will begin to put it together. The chief argument in spiritual Ephesus where the gospel is broken out in every way and Paul warns Timothy about who is also stationed in Ephesus is you beware of religion without power. You beware of men that make idols. You beware of these people who are attached to this female goddess. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed in as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. You know where this is taking place? Back in that theater. Show us the theater again for a second. The scene that is about to take place is occurring on the floor right in front of what looks like a bowl shape cut out of the mountain. And there's 25,000 people in it who are angry, and Paul is fighting for the opportunity to address them. And the whole city surrounding it begins shouting for two hours in unison, Great is Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians. Do you still want to live in Ephesus? I thought it was a place of miracles. I thought it was a place with every special blessing from the heavenly realm. I thought it was a place where we were told we were seated with Christ. And now we're hearing that it's a place with demon-possessed people. It's a place where an entire trade of craftsmen can turn the whole city against you and start to tear men apart at the seams. They're so angry. Do you mean to tell me that God shows up where there is conflict and contention to support his people? Paul is not scared to go into the arena because Proverbs 28.1 says that the righteous are as bold as lions. Let me ask you, would anybody that you know describe your Christian faith as bold as a lion? I'm not interested in how you describe it. I'm asking you if anyone that you know, when we say, hey, name a Christian that is as bold as a lion, would you be in their top three? See, if we are in terrible times, if those times are going to grow, do you know what else is going to have to grow? Your Christian witness. You're going to have to learn to stand. And when we do, 
We become like spiritual Ephesus. You start to find out that there is power available for us that we never knew because we never thought we needed it before. But if you already have a lackadaisical attitude towards the word, a lackadaisical attitude towards the things of the spirit, well, let's keep hearing the story about Ephesus. In verse 30, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the providence, friends of Paul, sent him message, begging him not to venture into the theater. The whole assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for their silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The people didn't even know why they were there. They just knew that they were spiritually whipped into a frenzy. And the one group of people they didn't like more than any other were those who represented God. In this case, the Jewish contingency. I have a picture for you of the uh, temple of Diana or Artemis. You're going the wrong way, young man. You're getting close. There we go. One more. One more. There we go. This is all that stands of the great temple of Artemis. That's it. We have one column. And I've not yet had the opportunity to go to this site because if I had, that column might not be standing. This is the great testimony to the Ephesian goddess Artemis. Of course, through the years, she's been known by many names. The Romans called her Diana. Sometimes the Greeks merged her attributes with Sybil. The Egyptians often referred to this kind of female goddess as Isis. Interesting things about Artemis. When we're thinking about Artemis, let's go to the next slide. We'll come back to that if we need to. Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. The temple of Artemis was dedicated to this goddess. Some say the goddess of the hunt, but the truth is she was often depicted as a virginal goddess. It's an interesting concept, a virginal female goddess. Only the foundation of one column remains of this temple, which measured 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and 60 feet high. Paul spiritually tore down this power. He turned the city upside down. The problem is he was one man, and he had to leave Ephesus to the work of other men. And he warned them, and he talked to them about it. He told them what was going to happen. And yet somehow or another in the terrible struggle, things still happen. I'm going to get to that in just a second. When you are thinking of Artemis, know a couple things. Artemis was worshipped as a female deity all over the world under different names, but the Ephesian cult in particular had a celibate priesthood. Worshipped a virginal goddess. And in the 3rd century A.D., in the archaeological strata, she shows up with a baby for the first time in history. Prior to that, she had never had one. It's just worth maybe jotting a note down, seeing that, seeing if it makes sense to you. I want to show you an agora in uh, Ephesus. 
And Agora is a marketplace. Guys, if you wanted to go to Walmart in the ancient world, this is it. Right here. Like uh, those, those columns that you have there, this is where booths are. Um, it, it, think of it as a big flea market. This is the marketplace of the day. See, Christians in Ephesus had to go to the Agora to get food. They had to go to the Agora to get clothes, to do those kind of things, right? The problem is that the Agora is also a place of idolatry. Let's move to the next slide. This is a big Agora, and I don't want to spend any more time talking about that, but this is probably where Paul and Priscilla and Aquila had a tent-making business, that very plot of ground that you were looking at. Let's go to the next one. Right next to the Agora is Domitian's temple. Now, Domitian is a Roman emperor, and the time period that I'm talking about is right around 90 AD. And this Roman emperor built on the side of the Walmart of the day, right next to the Artemis temple, his own temple. And not much of it's left, but this is what's left. And this temple itself really had some interesting things. Number one, there was a statue of Domitian in it, and the statue itself was 27 feet tall. As if that's not prominent enough of Domitian, there were 24 special columns that had a platform on top of them, and Domitian was on top of that, and the columns themselves were 35 feet high. So 35 feet of column, a platform, and then 27 feet of Domitian. Somebody said that's a lot of Domitian. On the 24 columns are the names of other Greek gods. This was an effort for Domitian to send one resounding message. I'm above all of those gods. This is happening in Ephesus. Now, when we're thinking about what else has happened in Ephesus, let's suppose that in the 60s, Paul went to be with Jesus, right? So Paul has written everything he's going to write. He's done everything that he's going to do. But he had a young protege that he left in Ephesus. While you leave this picture on the screen, y'all turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3. Say there when you get there. As I urged you when I was in to Macedonia, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Command certain men, not ask, not politely request, not write a letter of rebuke. What is he supposed to do? Command. How, how about in First uh, Timothy 1.18? 1 Timothy 1.18 says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them, you may fight the good fight. He stationed Timothy there, a protege who would follow years after him in his footsteps. And the first thing that Timothy is told to do in the very first letter written to Timothy is command men not to teach false doctrines. One of the very next things he's told to do is you're going to have to fight the good fight. I don't know if we have any Greek scholars in here tonight. If we do, I would embarrass us both by pronouncing these Greek words. I'm not going to do it. 
I'm going to tell you that there's a Strong's number for fight here. And it's 4752. And it is strategia. In 4754 is the other word for fight. It's also a derivative of the word strategy. Early in the letter, when Paul tells uh, Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, he is literally saying, strategize a good war plan. The word strategia here means like a military leader would organize troops and lead them into battle. He said, hey, I need you to fight the good fight. Go with me to the 6th chapter in the 12th verse. The same words in English, but not the same words in Greek. 6th chapter, 12th verse. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which to which you were called, and you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. When he says fight the good fight of faith here, the Greek word is agonai zome. It's where we get the word agony. He first tells him, you're going to have to plan the right strategy. Then secondly, when he repeats what looks to us like the same phrase, he says, it will be an agonizing agony. Church, does that sound like something that is easy to you? So when we tell people, if you come forward or stay where you're at, you raise a pinky, and if you can repeat a prayer that I script, you don't say, but you nod your head to, I don't think that's a good battle plan. And I've not observed people agonizing the good agony that come to Christ that way. If that's where you started, as long as that's not where you stayed, you and I are at peace. But when you make the starting line the finish line, that's not a battle plan. There's no agony involved in that. Ephesus starts off extraordinarily well. Can we agree? I mean, Paul turns the thing upside down. He does extraordinary miracles. There's a book burning, y'all. I mean, this is awesome. Sounds like revival fires. But within the lifetime of his protege, we've got a guy named Domitian that shows up, and he makes Ephesus... His Neochorus. Neochorus is a fancy Greek way to say his world headquarters. He actually puts a throne on top of the pantheon of gods. So he has a statue up there on top of 12 colonnades. This is where he puts his throne. He's the ruler of the known world. His father was a guy named Vespasian who had been wounded in battle but survived. He put altars all over that agora that we saw pictures of earlier. Go back to the agora, DJ. He put altars all over it. Do you see where um, we have little brick structures and then a space and little brick structures and then a space? Do y'all see that? Say, yes, pastor, I see it. You ever walked into a stadium and you had to go through tunnels to get there? You know, the openings? How do they know that you... uh, that you made it into those tunnels, like that you're supposed to be there. How do they know that? Ticket. Ticket. Huh. How about that? So when you go to a sporting event, you have to go into something, they take a ticket from you? Well, what if it was like Walmart, though? How would you know that you were supposed to be there? See, Domitian, he he issued a, a decree that everybody would call him Lord and God. 
And if you wanted to go to his marketplace, it's widely reported among scholars. A couple in particular have made it famous. He required you to sacrifice at his altar and put ashes on your head and your hand. See, when you put the ashes on your head and your hand, then everybody in the Agora knew that you were loyal to Domitian. And so you could go in and buy and sell in his marketplace. Domitian insisted on being addressed as my Lord and my God. By his decree, all imperial statues of him were made of gold. He began his letters, which exist today, as your Lord and God commands you. He had a royal choir with 24 singers in it, singing 24 hours a day, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive honor, glory, and power. He had coins minted with the saying, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. By the way, you can read that in Christ and the Caesars. All of this is sourced out of our library. It said that he was cruel beyond measure. To a group of people called the Nazameans, he issued one decree that simply said, I cease to permit you to exist. And then they were annihilated by the Roman legions. In another instance of suspected revolt, he had all of his advisors over for dinner and served them a meal on their own tombstones. Still want to live in Ephesus? What he's most famous for is the Domitian Games. In the Domitian Games that were held in that... Go back to the theater, DJ. The Domitian Games were held in this theater. Picture this. Domitian began by holding a scroll indicating his right to rule and his worthiness as an emperor... While the people said, you are the only one worthy to rule. Then all of the rulers of the provinces would come into that very stadium where Paul stood and present themselves before Domitian and he would say, I have this for you while I hold these things against you. There was a worship section in those seats, those very seats right there. There was a worship section that said uh, they were all dressed in white The priests were wearing crowns with divine titles of Domitian on them. And the people were commanded by the worship section to cry out, Great are you, our Lord and God, worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. Worthy are you to inherit all the earth. Are you enjoying Domitian yet? The highlight of the games was when four different color horses would race around that arena... And then Hades and death would clear the gladiatorial surface of all of the dead bodies. Are you um, recognizing any of that? How do you have a city that is a revival city with extraordinary miracles where they burn books end up in this situation? I thought God wouldn't let that happen to us, Brad. The church of Jesus Christ was always meant to stand against the most evil of our times. We are the pillar and foundation of truth on the earth. We are here to represent the king of kings. There's one group of people in Ephesus in the first century near the end of it saying, Domitian's not king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus Christ is. Do you know what they had to do though? They couldn't buy or sell in the Agora. 
They lived underground at times to avoid his troops. Some are reported to have not left caves for six months at a time. How seriously do you think they took their walk? You know, within 100 years of Domitian's death, Ephesus was 90% Christian. Somebody say that's pretty good. Of course, today, Ephesus is 90% Muslim. Somewhere along the way, somebody dropped the ball, don't you think? Somewhere along the way, somebody got a little too casual with sin. Somewhere along the way, somebody took the word of God a little too lightly. Somewhere along the way, they stopped hurting for righteousness' sake and decided instead that they were doing pretty good doing it their own way. Turn with me to Acts, the 20th chapter. Go to the Council of Ephesus, DJ. In Acts, the 20th chapter, let's read verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught publicly. Say, taught you publicly? No, everybody say it. Taught publicly? Religion is not a private matter. The Apostle Paul taught in the open streets in a spiritual environment that would produce Domitian. Publicly and from house to house, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. That's one thing to say it. It's another to prove it. If only I may finish the and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of grace. I don't want to pause here too long because it's late. But there's a part of this message that you need to get before we move on. Paul is finishing his race. He did his job. He turned the city upside down for Jesus. He's about to give a warning to the elders in the church. And he also stations his young protege there. And he tells the young protege, get the right strategy. You strategize with the right strategy. It will be agonizing and you have to hurt for it. And in their lifetime, they did pretty good. But somewhere along the way, somebody dropped that ball. Somebody took it a little too lightly. Somebody didn't get on their mark and get ready to run their race. Maybe they started with the wrong intention. Maybe they were told, it'll help you in this life and be heaven in the next. Maybe they were told they were already champions and nobody told them that they would have to face the antichrist of their own day. Church, if you're lackadaisical now, well, it's easy. Do you really think that you won't equivocate and find new ways to sin when it's hard? You know, you spend a couple days uh, without a great deal of purpose before you and you find ways to sin. What do you think it'll be like when it really costs you something to be a Christian? 
in Apollo, Syria, or Aleppo, Syria, where I was reading of Christian martyrs, a husband and wife, 40 years old, encouraging each other as she was brutalized before her husband. Three young pastors in their 30s with their families, watching to see how the older men and women handled it, and they were praising God. Do you really think they were doing some of the things that happened in this church as far as personal holiness? Or do you think that if your life was on the line, you might step it up a notch? I'm here to tell you your life is on the line. You just don't know it yet. You're already out of the starting blocks and in a race. And the seriousness with which you take that will determine how you finish. You haven't won anything yet. And if you stand next to people that you admire, praise God, that's a good place to be. But you need to live an admirable life. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole will of God. Did you hear whole will? Whole will. He didn't segment it. He didn't boil it down to irreducible minimums. He did He preached the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves. Say over yourself. And over and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You have to watch over your own life before you can watch over others. Your own life has to fit the mold and the standard before you can presume to teach others. I love you very much, but some of you that are the most vocal when you're abroad live terribly here. So you preach powerfully somewhere else, but here you're not living well. I even wonder if one of the reasons that you preach the way you do there is because you see in them yourself and you hate it. Church, if you want to be powerful in the kingdom, you will first have to get your own holiness right before you attempt to help other people get their holiness right. Could any of you stand up and say, you know how holy, righteous, and blameless I've been while I was among you? Because that's how Paul started this address. Is that a high standard? It's the only standard. It is the only standard. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. Say distort the truth. Are you ready for the rest of the story? Council of Ephesus. In the year 431, there was a council held in Ephesus. It was held right where those pictures were taken. Where Paul came into direct conflict with men who were idol makers. Men who were making idols of a female deity who was a virgin and had a celibate priesthood. In that city where they wanted to tear Paul apart, but because he raised up a generation of righteous people and told them, you strategize the right strategy, you agonize for it, you hurt for it. They stood against the Antichrist of their day, Domitian. And they turned the city around. Even Domitian, who, who was the most vehement, wicked human being, couldn't stop them. But you give it a few hundred years, 
a little attrition, a little taking it lightly, a little getting laxed. And in that city, they named Mary Theotokos. Theotokos literally in Greek means the bearer of God. She's God's mother. How interesting that is the exact title that had been used of the other female deities that worship there. And in the very place where Paul said, from your own number, ravenous wolves will raise up. I want to show you a next slide. This is what Rome says about its history. Rome says that there was a she-wolf who nursed two orphans. So boys, human beings that were raised by a wolf, Romulus and Remus. Does anybody know their occupation? Shepherds. They're shepherds. But one shepherd, Romulus, kills the other shepherd, Remus. So they are shepherds that have murderous hearts towards one another. And that's what Rome says about itself. That is the story. That when we say George Washington chopped down a cherry tree, when we teach about skipping stones across the Potomac, this is the legend of Rome right here. And in the year 431, something else happened. Let's go to that next slide. If you're in here tonight and you have Roman Catholic sensitivities, number one, make sure you do not show more deference to an organization of men than you do God's word. Number two, I'm assuming that most of you are Protestants, not Catholic. And I'm not preaching to or about Catholics. I'm speaking to you. I was eating today with Alex Adarmes. Boy, I love him. And I looked up and I noticed men in the restaurant had ashes on their forehead. I thought, what an unusual thing. Oh, that's right. We just went through three incredible days of sin. And uh, today's the holy day. As I began to contemplate about the extraordinary ignorance of history that produces this, I thought, at least they're willing to stand out for what they believe. In fact... I wonder how many people walk up to that poor Catholic guy in a day and say, hey, you got something on your head. I bet he feels a little awkward. I bet he's self-conscious. I began to admire the Catholic man who is misdirected, but he's willing to put ashes on his forehead and walk around in public because the brave Protestant church has so blended in with the world that it's as if you all have the mark of Domitian already. See... How we relate to sin matters. It matters. Have you ever heard, I taught a three and a half hour eschatology meeting the other day in Victoria, Texas. And I got one question at the end. It was a sweet question. They were godly people. It wasn't one. I got several, but the first one. Does that mean we're going to be around for the mark? It's what they wanted to know. Put Deuteronomy 6.4 on the screen. Now, You don't have to turn in your Bibles if you don't want to. I want you to hear every word, okay? Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart. Say, upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Oh, come on. Impress 
them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You wouldn't have to be worried about the mark of the beast if you already had the word of God tied on your hand and head. You wouldn't have to be worried about being marked by something other than the word of God because from the moment you were born again, you got on your mark. You were running your race. Everybody in the world knew where you stood. Nobody even asked you if you wanted the mark of the beast because they assumed you would say no. How about Deuteronomy 11, verse 13? So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain. And the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good, good land the Lord is giving you. What is the answer? Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your forefathers. Do you know what I'm reading to you from? It's the daily Hebrew prayer, the Shema. Every Orthodox Jew everywhere in the world prays it every day. Shema Yisrael is how it begins. Have you ever looked and said, Jews rejected Christ? Or looked at Catholic folks and said, man, they're full of idolatry. (laughs) Yeah, but a Catholic man is standing out in a restaurant, at least for what he believes. Are you standing out anywhere? And the Jewish man that you think rejected Christ is actually trying to tie the word of God to his hand in his head every day. He's talking to his children about it in the morning, at night, when he gets up, when he lays down, when he goes in and out of his house. So let me ask you, spiritual Ephesus, blessed in every way, given everything in the heavenly realms, seated with Christ, all the incomparably great power of the resurrection, and what are you doing with it? Have you turned your city upside down? You even turned your family upside down. What are you doing with it? Might be time to hear those words that Paul told Timothy. Strategize a good strategy. It might be time to hear those words that Paul told Timothy. Agonize a good agony. Maybe somebody told you this was a cakewalk, but it's not for me. Say, you know, (laughs) I just don't always feel good when I hear you preach. You're not supposed to. You should have to agonize. So sometimes I doubt my salvation when I'm around you guys. Good. The Bible says continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Church, it's not to beat you up. But if you can't handle preaching from the word of God, do you really think you'll stand against someone who is worse than Domitian? What would you do to keep your baby fed? 
Because the Ephesian church had to face that. What would you do to protect your family? See, right now our choices feel so easy that it makes them hard. They're going to get very difficult at some point. They're difficult in Aleppo, Syria. They're difficult right outside uh, Mosul, Iraq. They're difficult all over the Christian world right now. Do you really think that we're some kind of exception? I do want to encourage you. If judgment will begin with the house of God, Ezekiel 9, write it down. Ezekiel 9, verses 4 through 6. Do you know where the first marks of protection show up for God's people? Right there in the sanctuary of God. The angel begins marking people before the destruction of Babylon and no harm can come on the ones that he marked. And do you know where he started marking? At the house of God and working outward. Write down Revelation 7. Revelation 7, 2 through 3. This is where those who belong to God are sealed with him before any harmful plague comes upon the earth. We don't have a reason to fear anything except that we might fall away from the Lord. We have no reason to feel fear evil. We have no reason to fear Domitian. We were made with an incorruptible Holy Spirit of God to stand up to Antichrist, not have fellowship with the world. Are you pretty chummy with Sodom? Pretty giddy with Gomorrah? You all right with all of that? Because Jesus Christ is coming back for a holy, pure, and spotless bride. I'm going to close with you in Revelation 13 and 14. Let's just go to 14. We'll go right to it. Say there when you're there. Matthew, you'll want to come up here. Whatever your situation is, you know, Pastor, I'm pre-trib, I'm mid-trib, I'm post-trib. That sounds like cereal to me, by the way. I want to tell you that the church of the living God has always stood against evil. Always. There's no way that the Apostle Paul stands still while babies are being murdered in the city. There's no way that he tells Timothy, hey man, just live your best life now while prostitutes are being victimized on Bissonette. There's no way that they just look the other way. You know how I know that? They didn't in their day. They didn't just look the other way. In Revelation 14... Pick up with me in verse 12. No, not 12. 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on their forehead or on their hand. You can't receive a mark on your forehead or your hand if it is already occupied by the word of God. I didn't even read to you Exodus 13 and 14. This is where your very acts mark your head and hand. It's a sign for the whole world. The question that I got was, hey, pastor, does this mean we're going to be around for all the mark stuff? In other words, do you mean something may be required of me? I've never heard that before. All of Christian history testifies to how much his body has endured. It's time to get our holiness right in the house of God. He too will drink the wine of God's fury. Anybody who takes a mark, which, he has been, which has been poured full strength into the cup of God's wrath, he will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. 
and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Look at verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Say remain faithful. If this week was all you had, would it represent your very best faithful? Or was it a subpar faithful? If today is all you had, would you be proud of it? Listen to what the response from the heavens is. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Somebody greatly loved named Roy Stockstill died in the last 24 hours. He finished his race. He left three generations of righteous people on the earth. All preachers. I can't tell you the number of pastors that he mentored or the number of years that he positively affected men's lives. He's blessed today. Not sad that he died. He's blessed. He's born in 1919. I would say it's about time to see Jesus. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. What will follow them? Church, I say get on your mark because there is only one thing that is going to follow you into eternity and it's not what the preachers have been telling you. It is not your doctrinal statement. It is not your statement of faith. What follows you into eternity is what you did for Christ in this life. You know what Paul is able to say? I turned Ephesus upside down. You know what Timothy is able to say? I fought the good fight. I, I got a right strategy and even when I was hit in the mouth, a church survived it and overcame Domitian. What will you be able to say? How will you share an eternity with men like these? What would you talk about? Ten minutes in, have we run out of your mighty exploits? See, church, I, I intend to not only get on my mark, but hit the mark he aims me at. Because it's not required of you that you do what Billy Graham did. It's not required of you that you do what Reinhard Bunker did. What is required is that you do exactly what he tells you to do. That's what's required. And you will never hit your mark if you don't get on your mark right now. 